A lot of times what professional investors do is they, they lean on an arbitrage of some kind where they buy low, sell high, and they kind of take the spread. And, and that's sort of what uh, professional investors are good at doing is identifying when there is some kind of a spread. And there's a spread because there's some irregularity. So in a market distress situation, all the properties come down a little. They may not all go to 80, they go to 85, 82. And, and people don't want to lower their price. So some people may stay at 100, but nobody's buying that property. So in over six months, they drop it down a little bit. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build multiple streams of passive income on Main Street through real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Boat, and today our guest is Joel Block. Today, we're learning about how to become an advantaged player in real estate and how to identify advantaged players in real estate. Well, what is an advantaged player? We learn about that today through Joel's experience as a former blackjack player professional blackjack player. We learn about how he became a professional blackjack player, his key lessons in turning the odds in his favor to make it work as a business venture. And then ultimately we transition that into learning about investing and how to identify the people and the teams who are advantage players so we can invest alongside them. An advantage player is a term that Joel uses in his business and his speaking, and he's going to explain that to us today as well. A lot of great lessons in this one. This is not a discussion around how to successfully play blackjack. We're not talking about how to do that profitably. We're pulling lessons around turning the odds in our favor in business and in life. Very important distinction. We're not a gambling show. We're all about investing, minimizing our risks, and maximizing our potential to earn great returns. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically multifamily and self-storage properties. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call, and we'll look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, once again, our guest is Joel Block. He's been on the show before about three years ago. Now he's back to teach us a different lesson, a new lesson, upgraded lesson, I suppose, about how we can identify advantage players in real estate. Without any further ado, here we go. Joel, thank you so much for joining us today, coming back on the show. It's been almost three years since we originally spoke about your venture capital background and so much more. For our listeners out there who somehow missed that interview, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your background, please? Sure. I, um, I started in the CPA business as a youngster and uh, really was that it was not a fit for me, I, even though I was at a, one of the giant firms at Pricewaterhouse. And they did some really interesting things, by the way. I mean, I counted ballots for the Academy Awards one year. I mean, I did some really, <laughs> really cool assignments, but the accounting world just wasn't for me. I was really more on the, on the deal side. I wanted to be in the deal business. And the last account I worked on there was a giant real estate syndicator where we were uh, converting the books and records of hundreds and hundreds of uh, partnerships into tax returns. And I was a lot more interested in reading the partnership agreements than I was in doing those tax returns. So I 
uh, left uh, Pricewaterhouse, started a little real estate syndication business in the 80s and started raising capital. And I've probably been involved in about 40 deals since then. Awesome. I love that. And oh. today I wanted to, if we can dig into, I think it's rewinding the clock even a little bit more, your your professional gambling days and, and dig into that because that's really fascinating. Yeah. You know, before I... Um, Started at Price Waterhouses. It really as a youngster when I was uh, early in college, I, I learned to be a crackerjack blackjack player and uh, was on one of the most elite teams in the world in the, in the very early 1980s. This was before the MIT and the the kind of the movies that got made. It was a little bit before that. Uh, blackjack really became something in the 1960s. So it wasn't the very very beginning, but it was a little earlier than when the MIT guys got involved. So. Uh, we were taking money out of casinos, both solo play, team play, and we can talk about what those different things are. But, uh, you know, I, I ended up uh, leaving Las Vegas and then going to the big casino on Wall Street. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I talk about the Wall Street casino here all the time. I got to tell you, man, that's what it's a, it's a giant craps table. You got the croupiers that are just moving the the, the stick men that are moving the, uh, the money around. And, uh, and taking the vig for the casino. And that's that's exactly how Wall Street works. 100%. 100%. Glad we're of the same mind there. So I want to first dig into, you know, I, I don't want to turn this into like a gambling uh, the discussion here. Or I, I want to dig into how you, as a professional blackjack player at that time, how you turn the odds in your favor, understand the game and, and change things so that it worked and was profitable although from what i understand it's not that profitable on an hourly basis we can get into that but let's start at a high level and and how you quote game the system or rig the system back in your favor well let's put it like this the amount of money you make is directly related to the amount of dollars that you have in your bankroll (laughs) so if you have a thousand dollars uh you're probably going to make about one percent per hour which is about ten dollars an hour so at ten thousand dollars, you might make a hundred bucks an hour and a hundred thousand dollar bankroll, which starts to be a large bankroll. You could be making some serious money. You know, then you're making a thousand dollars an hour because you're betting bigger numbers of dollars. But then you're going to have bigger swings. Your wins are going to be bigger. Your losses are going to be bigger. Now, here's the most important part to understand about how the game works. Nobody wins all their bets. Even professional card players, you don't win all the time. But what a professional does is by keeping track of the cards and analyzing uh, using a system. They have a sense about when the big cards, the good, the, pl- the cards that are good for the player are going to come out of the deck. It's not guaranteed, but when they're more likely to come out of the deck. And so what the advanced player, the advantage player, somebody who has plays with an advantage, uh, what they'll do is keep track of the balance between low cards and high cards. So let's say, for example, and this is, this is how the system works, uh, low cards are two, three, four, five, and six. High cards are your tens and aces. So 10, jack, queen, king, and aces. There are an equal number of low cards and high cards in a deck. Two, three, four, five, six, there's five of those. Uh, 10, jack, queen, king, and ace, there's five of those. Times uh, four each, there's 20 cards each. So, you know, 20 times uh, two, there's 40 cards that you got to keep track of. The rest of them you don't pay attention to. And by keeping track of the balance between the low cards and the high cards, if you see a bunch of low cards coming out, now low cards, keep in mind, are good for the dealer because uh, low cards help dealers to make bad hands like 16. 
they wreck up our double downs, you know, and they, they just prevent us from getting good hands like blackjacks. On the other hand, tens, they bust the dealer in those tough situations where they're forced to hit. Uh, they make our double downs and they create blackjacks for us, which pay frequently three to two. So for all those reasons, uh, tens are really good for us. So that when there's an abundance of high cards in the deck, tens and aces, that's when a professional player will push more dollars out onto the table. And depending on how big the spread is, the differential between low and high, they'll push out more and more money. So you really have to be paying attention. Uh, you have to have a system to make that work. It takes a lot of practice. I mean, I could tell you how to do this in five minutes, but five minutes to learn and quite a longer than quite a bit longer than that to master. I mean, as you can imagine. And you got to be able to do that in a noisy environment, smoky, people are drinking, yelling, screaming, and, you know, and you got to do it in a way that doesn't attract uh, any attention to yourself. Otherwise, uh, you'll draw some heat and you'll be asked to leave the casino. So, you know, that's kind of the, the basics of how the, the thing works. But the bottom line is that you don't win every hand, but you tend to win more often when bigger bets are on the table. And that's what makes uh, professional players uh, winners. Interesting. Okay. So I had heard a, a previous interview just before uh, we got on here. I was listening to another interview you did and discussing the game. And you dug a bit into the skill that you developed, specifically the memory skill that you developed prior to becoming a blackjack player. Can you tell us about that? Because there was so much to it. Well, so here, here's what's important. Blackjack does not require a memorization at all. It's not a game about memory. It's a game about uh, keeping track of the balance between low and high. But uh, when I was a youngster, uh, I became very fascinated uh, by memorization techniques. And there was a gentleman named Harry Lorraine, very famous magician, memory expert. And I studied him. And, and I learned to memorize uh, numbers, people's faces. Uh, you know, I could I could take a deck of cards. You could put five of those cards in your pocket. I could look at the other forty-seven, and from memory, not a trick, I could tell you what five cards were missing that were in your pocket. So I thought to myself, "Wow, if if I could learn to do this, I could probably go to Las Vegas and make money." I just thought that. So I went to a uh, a blackjack. Well, actually, I bought a book. I bought a book, and I started learning the system. And I learned how to count the basic cards. You know, I learned how it works. And then I heard about a seminar that somebody was offering how to be a blackjack, uh, you know, player and beat the casinos and all the rest. So, you know, so I go to this uh, little free seminar. And of course, the goal was to sell you a big package and they would teach you how to play blackjack. And um, at the end of the seminar, I go up to the seminar leader and I say to the guy, uh, hey, that was a really, really good seminar. He goes, well, so you buying the program? I said, no, 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 I'm not buying the program. He goes, well, why not? <laughs> I said, oh, I already know how to count. I'm already a good counter. He goes, oh, really? I said, yeah. He said, well, how fast can you count a deck of cards? I said, I can count a whole deck in 18 seconds. And he goes, wow, that is not bad for a beginner. Ugh. And I go, what, what do you mean for a beginner? What are you talking about? <laughs> he said, no, no, you know, for a beginner, that's pretty good. I said, well, how fast do you do it? He goes, well, I can do it in seven seconds. And Man. at that moment, I just had this incredible... Uh, reverence for this guy. I just, you know, and the guy ended up taking me under, under his wing. And I, I was very young. I was 18, 19 years old, maybe, maybe 20. I was in college and I, I went to UCLA at the time. And every day after school, I would go to this guy's house and he taught me advanced blackjack. And ultimately they brought me onto their team. I ended up even being a, 
an instructor at their blackjack uh, school, you know? Cool. So, and the, the guy who owned the, uh, the whole thing, his name was Jerry Patterson, very famous gambler, has written 20 or 30 gambling books. And, and I, they, they taught me how this game works and how to make it happen. So, uh, it was a, a fascinating experience in my life. And I really learned the concept of advantage play. And, and actually as an adult, uh, I ended up taking the concept of, of advantage play, uh, the concept of playing at the top of your game and, you know, kind of really just being the best you can be. And I carried that through everything else in my life, which has been a very fascinating thing. I love that. And that's really what I want to focus on today for the remainder of our, of our discussion is how we can become, quote, advantage players, as you like to say, yeah, as investors. <laughs> I don't necessarily want to uh, focus too much on the blackjack because, you know, this uh, hey, listen, I, I think investing is not an gambling. advantage player in every part of your life. Yeah, I, mean, I think you should be an advantage player in every part of your life where you play with an advantage, where you have a, you know, you have extra insight more than other people. Think about it like this. You got seven people sitting at the blackjack table. Six of the people, they don't know uh, what day of the week it is, what time it is, what they have for dinner, what they're doing for breakfast. They, they don't know anything that's happening around them. And one guy sitting at the table knows so much about what's happening that that guy knows what cards are coming next. How is it possible that six people are so oblivious that they don't know anything and one guy knows everything? But, you know, if you think about your life, that's kind of how the world works. Six out of seven people are walking around, uh, you know, not knowing what's going on around them. And one person <laughs> just has this sense. They just understand the rules of the game better. They, they just kind of glide through life. They just sort of seem to understand the rules of the game better than other people. And that's what advantage players are. So think about this. I have people say, you know, Joel, I, I'm just not finding any deals. Well, you know, is it possible that you're walking over $100 bills because you don't recognize them. You don't know what they look like. I mean, that's what the six people are doing is they're walking over $100 bills because they don't understand what they look like. They're, they don't know what to look for. Maybe, you know, and that's that's important. And that, by the way, is the reason that uh, retail investors really need to align themselves uh, with syndicators, fund managers, and people who are professional investors that are finding deals, that are putting deals together because, you know, probably more often than not, you're going to make a lot more money with the professional person than you are uh, trying to do this by yourself because you just may not have the sense about what a deal is, what it looks like, what's possible for something, uh, just like those six people sitting at the blackjack table. So, okay. So this is one of the reasons I, I call Wall Street a casino, but it's almost worse than a casino because a lot of people are walking around thinking they know what's going to happen next, but... They don't, and almost nobody really does, and nobody does statistically in the long run with Wall Street. But that's Wall Street. We're talking about real estate investing here. And so how can, especially passive investors, work to identify the people, the sponsors, the operators who have that advantage and, and they know what's going on versus the ones that don't know what's going on? Well, first of all, let, let's put it like this. Let's talk about the difference between real estate and the stock market. Love it. We have to understand that first. The stock market, no one has control over what happens. No one. It's you, there is no control. Uh, I, I think in the movie Wall Street, in the movie uh, Wolf of Wall Street, uh, I don't know. I don't care if it's Jimmy Buffett or Warren Buffett. Nobody knows what's happening tomorrow. Right? <laughs> I think there's a line that's something like that. And, and that's true. Nobody knows. Real estate is different than that. Real estate, you can force value into an asset. So people who know what they're doing, 
Uh, if there can be 10 houses on a street, uh, that the, all the houses on the street are worth a hundred grand because it's a nice neighborhood and one house is deficient and maybe, uh, needs a lot of work. So you might be able to pick that up for 50 grand, put 20 grand into it, be into it for 70 and now it's worth a hundred. So it's possible very differently than in the stock market because that doesn't happen in the stock market. I mean, there may be teams of company leaders and boards of directors and everything, but they just don't have control over what the market values those companies at. Whereas in real estate, it's much more predictable. You can harness it. It's much easier to understand that. And now that doesn't mean everybody can do it, by the way, but professional people are able to do it. And let me tell you that when I say professional, what I'm talking about are professional investors who know what they're doing. Retail investors tend to hope that something good happens. That is not what professional investors do. Professional investors don't buy and hope. They, they buy things for a specific reason because they know they can add value to whatever it is that they're doing. And, and that's a really important distinction. So for example, in a, in a market with some distress, there are three kinds of distress. There's property distress, which means that the windows might be broken uh, or, or something like that. Uh, there's owner distress, which usually is financial. It means that the person is behind their payments. They have, and by the way, financial distress and owner distress, uh, financial and owner is the same, uh, and property distress are related because when somebody gets into financial difficulty, they sort of let the property go. And the third kind of distress is uh, market distress. So in 2008, the whole market's on fire. Everything is crashing. You know, Professional investors will only buy the first two. Because they can correct the first two, the property distress and the owner distress. They never buy market distress because market distress is not correctable by anyone. It's kind of like lucky. But with capital, you can correct the problems of owner distress and property distress where you can't do that with, uh, with market distress. Retail investors who don't understand this concept frequently will say, wow, everything's on sale. I'm going to start buying now. Well, actually, nothing's on sale because the market has gone down and the, and the level of the ships has just dropped 10 feet. So nobody's getting a better deal than anybody else. They're all getting that's the new market price. And, and so the trick really, and what professional investors tend to be good at, is finding things that are out of whack with what the market is today. And that doesn't happen from a market distress condition. So as a baseline, that's really important to understand. Interesting. Okay. That's that's a great point. I, I appreciate you lining all three out for us. Now, the financial distress, we're in a period of rising interest rates. That, you know, people have different opinions about what the Fed's going to do over the next, you know, year. Are they going to keep hiking rates and all that? But reality is that debt is more expensive now than it was over the last couple of years. And people think that's going to make uh, add some financial distress, maybe some market distress, though, because that could put you know downward pressure on single families, commercial real estate, those kinds of things. What are your thoughts around identifying what is, say, a financial distress for an owner as opposed to a general market distress? How can we kind of suss those two things out? Because they well, could could they happen at the same time? Yeah, they're listen. They're 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 sort of uh, close to each other in some ways. Mm-hmm. But let's say that the uh, the neighborhood that was a hundred grand in the previous example now is eighty grand. Well, the owner distress situation 
you know, the person's going to, you know, be behind their payments. The person's going to have some problem and you might now be able to pick the property up for 40,000 instead of 50,000, like in the previous example. And you put your 20 in and you still might make 30 grand or whatever you end up making. You make some, some spread on that deal. A lot of times what professional investors do is they, they lean on an arbitrage of some kind where they buy low, sell high, and they kind of take the spread. And, and that's sort of what uh, professional investors are good at doing is identifying when there is some kind of a spread. And there's a spread because there's some irregularity. So in a market distress situation, all the properties come down. A little. They may not all go to 80. They go to 85, 82. And, and people don't want to lower their price. So some people may stay at 100, but nobody's buying that property. So in over six months, they drop it down a little bit. And that's kind of what realtors help people to do is figure out what the right price is. But professional investors look at something different than that. They look and they say, if I pump some money into this deal, could I make an 80 property back up to 100? And in a, in a market that's distressed, the answer is probably not. The house is pretty good and there's not a lot you can do. So nobody's buying that property. That's, that's a trophy property. That wouldn't be a property that you buy as a value add. And a lot of smaller syndicators are doing value add type deals. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not talking about the AAA apartment buildings that are, uh, you know, yielding one or 2% cash flow. Uh, there are plenty of international investors who buy these one or 2% deals because they can't even get one or 2% in their own country. So uh, a lot of the investors that we see are buying these value-add deals because they, uh, they know that they can pump some value into them and they can change the pricing based on their own smarts and their own experience. So it sounds like it's, it's the difference between, between catching a falling knife, which the market distress is a bit more of a catching a falling knife scenario, as opposed to have a hard time thinking of anything other than saying adding value to something that the knife's already potentially hit the floor, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and if you can identify something now, and that applies to uh, people, whether you go into a deal with a syndicator or not, the reason though, that a lot of people go into deals with syndicators is because if you're not in the marketplace and you're not seeing deals every single day, the likelihood of you getting a great deal is pretty low. Because people are looking for these uh, 50,000 uh, properties at 100,000 environment. And they're out there every single day. They're out there. But most regular people, these 95% of the people aren't finding. Well, why not? Well, there's a lot of reasons why not. And number one is they may not be connected to the brokers who know about them. They may not uh, you know, be doing business with the brokers who know about them. And if you're doing business with the brokers, the brokers are more likely to pass you these deals. Yeah, there, there could be 100 different reasons. Uh, you know, maybe the deal comes online and you're not quite ready. You, you just, oh my God, you, you kind of get uh, get frozen. You get nervous. You don't know what to do. Maybe your cash isn't ready. You know, at a hundred grand, listen, plenty of people could buy properties at 500 grand or a million dollars. Not everybody can do that. And so then you sort of have to start pooling capital together in order to be ready. Uh, the ability to do due diligence on a certain time frame or schedule could be very difficult. That might not be something that everybody can do. So uh, a lot of times people just opt to go in with a professional person, take a piece of the action instead of all the action and doing all the work. And they may end up making more money because they end up getting a better deal. The syndicator will probably end up buying the property for a lower price than the retail investor would end up going in at and uh, and just end up better off all the way around. Great. So before, we're running close to time here, but before we move on, I want to bring up another thing we discussed before we uh, started recording, which is the crypto and NFT space. I know you have some thoughts around 
all the basically the fraud that's going on there and why that hasn't been essentially shut down by regulators. I mean, there, there are people out there pumping these things that say things that I couldn't imagine saying publicly about any kind of investment or privately, anything like that, and pump and dumps and pyramid schemes, all these things, and nobody's going to jail over it. I don't get it. So I want to bring that up before we move on. Well, I think that um, the regulators are deliberately looking the other way. And they're not doing it to hurt people. They're not doing it because they uh, don't take their job seriously. They do. Uh, the cryptocurrency market needs to be regulated. It needs it. All the legitimate players want it to be regulated. There are some really, really important questions that need to be answered. So, for example, fund managers, guys like me, guys like you, uh, let's say we wanted to put something together and we wanted to uh, put a deal or something like that together. We need certain answers to certain questions that we have. So, for example, if I want to put together a deal, I don't know if the government in the future, because the rules don't exist now, are going to treat cryptocurrency like commodities, like a potato, or like a security, like a stock. I don't know which set of rules to apply. And the rules are different. I mean, they're totally different from each other. And if I guess wrong, that would be bad for everyone. So it makes it very <laughs> difficult for me to, in good faith, uh, put a deal together because I can't predict what's going to happen. Now, why would the government drag their feet? Well, the primary reason is that uh, a lot of these uh, a lot of these guys, either the regulators or their friends on Wall Street, because they all come out of Wall Street, they all watched what happened when the internet came online in the 1990s. The first industry to get totally decimated and wiped out were the travel agents, because all these 50-somethings back 30 years ago uh, figured out that they could buy travel, and that was kind of the killer app that kind of got the internet going back in the beginning. Is all the, you know, the 50 year old people, our grandparents, uh, you know, Hey, what a cool thing. I could book my own travel. I don't have to call a travel agent. I could buy my airplane tickets. And, and they started buying computers and hooking up their computers to the internet. And, and that was kind of what got people excited about doing it. So the travel agents all got blown up. And then the next thing that got blown up were the recruiters because we had monster.com and these other agencies that, so there are all these intermediary businesses. Well, guess what Wall Street is? Wall Street is a giant intermediary business. <laughs> it has a fence around all the money in the country. And they're sitting going, you know what? We cannot lose our our control of the fence or that we have around all the money. So the Wall Street companies, the banks, the mortgage bankers, the investment banks, they're all buying interests in a lot of the cryptocurrency assets. I mean, they're trying to control as much of that as they can. So when this happens in a big way, and I believe that the United States is going to move to a digital currency sometime in the next 10 years or so. When that happens, they want to be the ones that are in control. It's much harder to control this than they think. And, and who's the chairman of the, uh, of the SEC? You know, it's, it's a Goldman guy. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, he's kind of slowing down the agenda of not putting a lot of this together until a lot of his friends can make sure that this is all organized. And once that gets organized, then, uh, you know, then we'll have some regulation, but you know, they've been going slower on purpose. So, and, and there's a lot of fallout from that. Number one, it's preventing, uh, you know, the business from skyrocketing in the United States. There's a lot of crime. There's a lot of uh, Ponzi's there's a lot of different kinds of frauds that you're talking about. And uh, I think the government is really responsible for moving too slow. And the sad part to me, when the internet came online in the 1990s, our country dominated the development of the internet. 
dominated. Look at all the wealth that got created. But we are not dominating. In fact, we're, we're shying away from a lot of the digital currency stuff. And consequently, uh, you know, we are way behind the eight ball. But I'll tell you this. Part of the reason why cryptocurrency is going to happen is the war in Ukraine. Hmm. Oh, President Biden is not getting along with the Saudis. Uh, he's been rude and uh, he's made uh, comments that the Saudi prince found to be uh, very insulting. Uh, and that's just been reported in the news. I'm just saying what's in the news. And so the Saudi prince, uh, who is in charge of the country, said, uh, we're going to start taking Chinese yuan in payment for oil, not mm-hmm. the dollar. Well, this is a big problem for the United States because the panache of our currency is being tarnished. It's being devalued. The country, the countries around the world are now having options to pay in other currencies. And then Ukraine comes along and the president in part of the sanctions correctly. This is all he did correctly. He says, okay, we're turning off the uh, access to the SWIFT system. Mm-hmm. And so we're not going to let you do wires and transfers and whatever kinds of things happen through international banking. Well, uh, I think that's the right thing to do under the circumstances and whatever they, they did what they needed to do. But, uh, you know, Putin looks around and says, gee, you know, I need to move money around. Uh, maybe I'll just start buying cryptocurrency and moving it through that system instead. And that's what's happening is that the value of the SWIFT system, because now there's an alternative. And I don't think that, you know, the dollar is going to be replaced by Bitcoin. That's not what I'm suggesting because the, the currency is the speculative part. What I'm talking about is the machinery that moves the transactions. Trillions and trillions and trillions of transactions happen every single day. It is much better than the stock market. It is much better than any of the machinery that exists, even better than NASDAQ. It's better than anything that exists now. It's faster. It's more secure. It really works. And, you know, in the United States is, is kind of behind the eight ball. And I'm very disappointed that we didn't jump on board and really start building this out and start controlling how a lot more of it works instead of us coming to the party, Johnny come lately and, and dealing with that problem. Interesting. I'm concerned, you know, there's a concern about the health of the dollar in the long run in light of the, you know, national debt. Are we going to keep printing and monetizing the, the national debt? But is the US dollar just going to remain the, uh, the prettiest ugly duckling, I guess, if you will, because you know, there's concerns about, the Chinese real estate market, you know, blah, 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 blah. I don't, I don't have the answers here. These are just, you know, things that, that we hear out there. I don't really know, but I'm going to keep investing in real estate. That's all I really well, know. Listen, uh, you know, there's not a lot of good alternatives to the dollar, but, but, it, but that's changing. And that, that's, it's a sad reality, but it's, it's changing. It's the nature of fiat, I suppose. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Joel, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show, but you've answered those before. You've been on the show before. I've got three new ones for our returning guests. Are you ready? Born ready. 
Great. What is your favorite book, business book, personal book, whatever, whatever your choice? You know, I'd have to say that uh, the memory book by Harry Lorraine that I referenced earlier probably had a bigger impact on my life than any book I've ever read or studied since. It just, it just, it changed the way uh, that I think it changed the trajectory of my life. And it was quite amazing. Great. So we had your favorite book. Now we go to a different type of tool, I suppose. What is an indispensable tool or asset in your business or life? God, I have so many apps that I need <laughs> all the time. You know, uh, as I think of 20 different things, I, I probably would say Evernote. Evernote. You know, I, I store a great amount of stuff in Evernote. I take notes in Evernote. Uh, I put receipts in Evernote. I mean, it just all this stuff goes into this repository. And it makes it possible for me to kind of be more paperless. I'm not fully paperless, but I'm more paperless because of this. And then all this stuff's available on my computer, on my phone, wherever I go. Uh, I love that tool. Hmm, great. I hear good things about that. I've tried. It just didn't stick with me. I don't know why, but a lot of great people uh, have success with Evernote. So I'm glad that's working out for no, you. One, one of the problems is that, uh, you know, it's like when we were children, uh, they marched us into the library and they said, okay, this is the Dewey Decimal System. Okay, here's how the house works and here's where all the books in the library are. But when it came to computers, nobody ever taught us how to like build a file system. Nobody taught us how to go paperless. Nobody. And so everybody's kind of got their own system, you know, hodgepodge here, there, you know, we'll kind of make it up as we go along. And the truth is that nobody has a great system. And, and so that's part of the problem is that uh, there's a business opportunity. If somebody come up with a great system, I think all of us are ripe for adoption. <laughs> Probably agree. So last question here is what is a trip conference or place you're excited to go in 2023? You know, my calendar's filling up for 2023 and I've got uh, a number of conferences where I'm invited to speak and I'm excited about every single one of them. So mm. you no, know, because I, I meet the most interesting people at these places. I, I share ideas and then people come and they ask about uh, ideas and one of the uh, little sayings that I have is that the hallmark of a great idea is one that gets bigger with each person who touches it. So when I put a concept out onto the table and let people chew on it, uh, they come back with new ideas and my ideas get bigger and bigger. And, and, and I just love that process. Is there anyone in particular that sticks out to you as uh, the most exciting or appealing maybe you're returning to? You know, I'm involved in the National Speakers Association and we have an annual conference every summer. And uh, that that's probably one of the most stimulating places that I go. Awesome. I like that. Well, it's been great reconnecting with you, learning about everything that you're up to and picking up so many new lessons. I, I love this uh, conversation. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down? Uh, the, the best place would be go to the website, theadvantageplayer.com. Great. Well, thank Look. you once again for uh, for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating interview on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.